Ah, l'amour. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry about my bad French accent. We are talking today about love. Bishop Caggiano is going to walk us through the four loves, Storgi, Philia, Eros, and Agape. And even if my Greek accent is worse than my French accent, well, you get to hear the bishop give his great insight into love on today's Let Me Be Frank. In the second segment, he turns his focus to the vocation of marriage. All right, so we have a great show ahead. So keep your radio tuned right here at 13.50 a.m. or keep it locked in on your phone on the Veritas mobile app. You know, you can listen to the live broadcast on the app. You can grab um, podcasts for any of our shows that you missed um, or if you want to listen again. And you can get the app at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at VeritasCatholic.com. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. It's that time of year again. Foundations in Faith will soon be accepting applications for Youth in Action grants. The program will fund three diocesan initiatives that are by youth and for youth for up to $5,000. To be eligible, applicants must be members of a Catholic high school, parish, high school, youth group, or a Catholic young adult group, and applications must also emphasize evangelization, collaboration, or justice and equity for historically underserved populations in their proposed programs. So keep an eye on the Foundations in Faith website. Applications go live on the Foundations in Faith website on October 4th, and they will close on November 19th at midnight. To learn more or to apply, visit foundationsinfaith.org and click on Youth in Action Grants. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. All right, I am Steve Lee, and it is my pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, good to be with you. I thought our last show was great with Steve Bowman. He I is he did an excellent, excellent presentation. Yeah, yeah, he's fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. And the two of you together make a great team. So, um, well, I'm, I'm learning from him. I really am. I think he's he's his methodology is simple. It's direct. And of course, it's going to lead into our conversation today, which is we're going to talk a little bit more about marriage itself, right? What it is, yes. what it's not. Right. And you, we've often spoken about love, and we're going to dive in a bit more into when you say the word love, it really means different things, depending on what context and to whom you're referring to. Definitely, definitely. Right. Uh, we also just um, mm-hmm. commemorated the 20th anniversary mm-hmm. of the September 11th attacks. I know right. you were right there, Excellency, 20 years ago. Right, right, right. Well, first of all, it's hard to believe 20 years have gone by. Yeah. It's also hard to believe that in many ways, um, the lessons that were learned in those early days have been unlearned. The world is just as violent. Violent. It's The Middle East is as much in chaos now as it was then, if not worse in many ways. Um, you know, it's ironic that the Taliban was ousted in response to 9-11, and they are back in power 20 years later. Um, the jury is out whether or not that's, there's a difference. You know, I, I'm skeptical of that, but I pray that there will be. But going back to 9-11, I mean, just to consider, I mean, we all kind of have this sense that the people we love Sometimes we take for granted, but when we come home, we always expect them to be home. We always expect them to come home. Yes. And on that day, you know, thousands did not come home. And you can't underestimate the, 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 the trauma that created in so many people's lives. Now, the children of those who died are now young adults, right? Yeah. So they know it through story. They may have a vague recollection. But we're actually now coming into the first generation that has no direct memory of what happened. Yes. So it becomes history like Pearl Harbor is history in the United States, right? 
But I think it's important that we, re like we did for the, the special celebrations we had, that we keep the memory alive, particularly in our region, because it so deeply affected so many of our sisters and brothers. Right. right? Yes. Yeah. You know, on CBS News, they ran a very interesting story. And if our li listeners did not have the opportunity to, to watch it, I just want to share very quickly. And that was, you know, United, the United flight that was hijacked, that was yes. on its way to Washington. Mm -hmm. There were, was an F-16 fighter plane. There were two of them that were launched to try to stop that plane or any rogue airline, because at that point, no one knew how many rogue airlines there were. Right. And the two pilots were interviewed. And it was fascinating to hear um, what, what they faced, <clears throat> because they needed to leave so quickly that their planes were not armed. They were not armed. Hmm. So they identified this United flight and were on their way to intercept it. And as the one pilot said, she said, you know, the United States military never goes into a kamikaze style attack. But she said, um, I recognized what this involved. That if this airline did not respond to the tactical maneuvers to try to get it to land, the only option we had was to fly right into it. And her colleague, who is now a general, would have aimed for the head of the plane and she would have aimed for the tail. Wow. Now, to think that, because she said, I, we knew what had to be done. We could not have more innocent lives lost on the ground because we had no control over the innocent lives that were in that plane. Right? They were in the control of the terrorists. And to think of the heroism of people like that who were willingly going to sacrifice their lives. Yeah. It's just a small story of the ones who were firefighters and police and emergency technicians and ambulance drivers and sanitation workers and, and, um, and of course, the chaplains who went to, to, to Ground Zero. And many of them, thousands have died since. Yeah. From all the disease that they've, you know, it's just, it's just really the magnitude of the loss is hard to, to quantify, right? We had on Sunday evening um, on the front line with Joe and Joe on Veritas, we had um, Joe and Joe interviewed a, a man named Deacon Paul Karras, who was working mm -hmm. on the 71st floor of World Trade One, and um, or One World Trade, and he saved the life of one of his coworkers and brought her down step by step. She was just frozen. She couldn't, but he coaxed her through it and took her all the way down and saved her life and, and his own. Uh, but they were the last ones out of their floor of the building because it took so long, but he stuck with her. It's a moving story, um, but wow. just normal people who stepped up, right. who found right. courage. Right. right. Well, that was the insight from last show. Sanctity is meant to look like normalcy. Like yeah. it's in ordinary, normal people who rise to heroism and virtue. Well, that's what sanctity is. It's not to, to, to it's meant for all of us is really what, what, what it comes down to. Yes. But on that day, there was some extraordinary. And, and the other thing, the, the memory, uh, not to go on and on about this, but I mean, we could have a whole show on this. Uh, the hospitality, the welcome, you know, the tough veneer that many people have disappeared, literally disappeared. Yeah. I saw, you know, in my parish, some of these men who, you know, kind of like the neighborhood guardians, let's put it that way, <laughs> you know, the tough guys. And they were crying like babies. Yeah. In church. Yeah. And unabashedly so, because a lot of their friends were law enforcement and they were there, firemen. They were there on the front lines, and they had lost contact. And days later, knew that they were gone. I mean, so it's, it brings out evil, brings out an option. To fight back with evil, which distorts humanity, and evil wins. Or to brings, brings out the best of humanity, which is nature informed by grace. Yes. And then evil has nowhere to hide, nowhere to stand, nowhere to stick. And my only regret is that the lessons learned were not, 
It's like the seed in the gospel that went on the soil, but then the sun came out and the seed withered. It did not implant deep within the soil, right? Yeah. yeah. That could have been a turning point. Yeah. Yeah. Right? But these, these 20 years later, I mean, on a day that brought so much destruction that was uh, fueled by evil, what we talk mm-hmm. about the most today is the love that came through. Yeah. Yeah. And, and which, yes. which, yeah, which actually kind of is the, the topic of, of today's show is love and the different types of love. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah. I, I, my, uh, just to put a, a closure on 9 11, I think um, we need to be prepared. Because our law enforcement and our security personnel do a phenomenal job of keeping us safe. And I am sure, I have no evidence, but I am sure that in these 20 years they have have thwarted many possible terrorist attacks in many parts of the world, particularly in our region here in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And so we have to be thankful for what they do, right? It's all behind the scenes. Yes. But we do have to be prepared because it only takes one mist to relive a horror like that. And we have to pray that that not happen. Yeah. And pray for the people who wish to give, to do so much harm that they will find a conversion of mind and heart, regardless of whatever religious faith they have. Okay. Because terrorism has afflicted every religious tradition. Even Christianity through the centuries, that they have a conversion of heart because they have to see that to serve God could not possibly be to be the agent of death and destruction. It could not possibly be honoring the only God that exists. Yeah. We have to pray for that. Okay. Yes. Yes. So we're going to talk about love. Where do you stand on the issue, Steve? Uh, I'm for it. (laughs) Great. (laughs) I think it's a good thing. Yeah, it is. But, but like everything else, it's misunderstood. Misunderstood not because I think people fall into a, um, a definition that is incorrect, but a definition that's only partial. Hmm. The worst thing to do is to have piece of the story and not the whole story. Because we all, I mean, except for sociopaths, right, we've all had an experience of love. Some evidence indicates that sociopathology is a person who truly has not experienced love for whatever reason and is totally disassociated, has no empathy, all right, no ability for friendship, no ability to give of oneself, which is scary, Mm. okay, because a sociopath can look perfectly normal until he or she opens his or her mouth and then you realize there's something very wrong here. So the first thing I want to say about this is, regardless of how we talk about it in its different forms, at the very heart of humanity is this mystery of love. It is who and what we were created for. When we say we're made in the image and likeness of God, and we say that God is love, then by logic, we are made in the image and likeness of love himself. And the fulfillment of human life is finding our way to live the various forms of love that are our gift, right? A gift that that is given to us by God because he created us this way. That's the first point. Second point is that no matter what any of these loves we're speaking about, but particularly when you get to philia and when you get to agape, it involves a vulnerability, a risk, To love does not mean to do it safely, to do it from the place of authority or power or to a place where you give a bit, but you stop at a certain point because you're only tasting. It's like having the antipasto and not the meal. Love demands a gradual giving of oneself so that, again, in the mystery of love, it's an emptying but then there's a receiving 
And again, we go back to the Trinity. It's exactly what love is. It's a complete, perfect, total emptying of the Father to the Son and a complete emptying, total giving of the Son to the Father, which is what love is. So why would we think love in the greatest way of looking at it, is in the most comfort, is not that? Because that's exactly, if, that's exactly what it is. And unfortunately, we live in a world that says, hedge a bet, give a bit, hold some back, keep your secret to yourself, right? test it out, sign the prenuptial, come in with conditions, and that ultimately stymies what love is meant to be. Right? And my last point before we get into the individuals is I've said it already three times. Love is a mystery. It is not something that can be completely and totally defined in words. Right? We struggle to do that. Because once again, if at the very essence of God is love, then who among us can define who God is totally and completely. Impossible. Hmm. Right? Yeah. But what it's meant is you experience, you experience the presence of God and you begin to know who he is. You intuit who he is. Even at times when we complement it by the words we speak and the concepts we strive to, to come up with. But what's essential is the experience. It's not the definition. <laughs> So this is not meant to be an academic exercise. This is just meant to kind of like paint a picture. Imagine a beautiful canvas. You paint the picture of the four types of love that C.S. Lewis speaks about. And you got to paint yourself in the picture. Or otherwise it's not complete. And once you're in the picture, once you're in the experience, you're in the mystery, then the mystery will teach what I and St. Thomas and perhaps nobody else could teach, except Jesus. Because Jesus taught us the parables, but he didn't stop there. He invited us into the mystery of his death and resurrection, which is the ultimate pinnacle of love. That's how we learn what love is. Does that make sense? Beautiful. Exactly, right. So anyway, okay, four types of love. Do you know what they are? Yes. You should, of course you know what they are. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, by name, they are uh, Storgi, mm -hmm. Philia, Eros, and Agape. Okay, which one do you want to start with? Uh, let's start with Storgi. Right. The best way I could describe that a Storgi or, uh, is empathy, right? It's, it's, it's the affection that comes from belonging. Right? So it's the natural affection that you would have towards a parent or a parent to a child, or the natural affection you would have to a place. Like, for mm -hmm. example, you know, it's funny, I was thinking about this over the summer. I spent some time at the apartment in Brooklyn, and where, you know, my parents, where my parents lived. And my family will be in that house 52 years in June. And there's an affection to it. It's so familiar to me. It's like putting on an old sweater. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. And that, that's very comfortable. And, it, and it, it makes you feel like you belong, even though the house doesn't look anything like it did when I was, when I was 1969, when my dad first bought it. But so that's the, that's the sort of, of, of familiarity, the fondness. And therefore, it, 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 it in fact, is powered by the discovery of something of value. Now, between a parent and a child, it's deeper than that, right? Because a child is of, could I dare say, immense, could I dare say infinite value, if a person is even capable of that, to a parent? Like, what would a parent not do for his or her son or daughter? I would think, a good amount of parents in a moment of crisis will give up their lives for their children. So this sort of affection almost runs the gamut of, of, of a range, but it really is that sense of belonging, discovering a value, clinging to that value, wanting to belong to that value and to protect that value, right? Does that make sense? It makes sense. It's a, a comfort mm -hmm. and like you said, familiarity. 
Now, uh, what's next? You choose. Let's go with um, philia. Philia. All right. Now, philia is Greek for friendship. We've spoken about this many times. The Lord uses the word friendship in a very particular way. He uses the word in a more powerful way than his contemporaries understood. But a friend is someone that you choose to love by willing his or her good and choosing to love them even when they are not at their best, at their ugliest. A friend is someone who, unlike a relative, is someone that you choose to enter into their life and they enter into yours, that you open your heart to. So in my mind, we live in a world that confuses acquaintance with friends. Mm -hmm. But if someone you know whom you consider a friend, knows you better than you know yourself, that, in my mind, is the litmus test of a true friend. Because you have opened yourself up, you have freely loved, and you have opened yourself vulnerably to all of those, to, it's who you are. This is extremely important because this love is, of all the loves, this is the one that the world desperately needs and this is the world, the love that many people misunderstand the most. Right? We would not live in such a divided world if we rediscovered what philia really meant. And there are some ancient cultures valued philia more than they valued married love. Precisely because it is a true gift. It is a completely true gift. Right? And it may start with common values, common interests, but it becomes more than that. It's a sharing of hopes and dreams and tears and struggles and triumphs and joys. <clears throat> so uh, you, we've talked about division in our world. I think I, priests, deacons, other religious leaders in other faiths need to make a priority the breaking open of this great gift. Because Jesus commands us, I no longer call you servants, I call you my friends. Yeah. For there's no greater love. There is, now, this is the mouth of the Savior, right? This is coming from the mouth of God himself. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. There is no greater love. Interesting, huh? And therefore, in the single life, which we're going to talk about, right? To complement what we spoke about married life is in a future podcast, right? At the heart of single life is friendship, which can be richly rewarding. Even though you don't share the love, all right, of eros, right? That's a romantic love with someone, but nonetheless, it's fulfilling and, and it can give tremendous meaning and purpose to life, right? Also, for those who have same-sex attraction, okay? There can be beautiful, meaningful friendships that are formed that have, do not have, as the church teaches, a romantic aspect to them, but still can give an opening of a life to another that can bring real companionship, but not in the way that the world suggests that it be done. It has so much richness, we will also have to deal into, dive into this, my friend, in a podcast. Yeah. Because I think it is important for celibates, for married people, for single people, for so many people to relearn the, the beauty of this love. Yeah. yeah I think, I think, I could be wrong. I think C.S. Lewis said that this, that this kind of love, this friendship, is the uh, closest resemblance to heaven that we can mm -hmm. experience here. And when mm -hmm. I think of that line and the way you just described friendship, Excellency, I mean, I think of Frodo and Samwise from the Lord of the mm -hmm. Rings and mm -hmm. Jonathan and David from the uh, Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And it actually uh, makes me realize I have very few of these kind of relationships, very few myself. Good, good, <laughs> excellent. Because it would be unwise 
or reckless for anyone to have a large circle of true friends. For you cannot open the deepest recesses of your heart willy-nilly to a, a crowd of people. Hmm. Right? Th that, that is allowing the innermost recesses of your heart to be trampled through. Because a, a friend is tested over time. Not consciously, but just emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. See, the Lord called his apostles friends at the end of his earthly ministry because after three years, he knew all their faults and failings. Good Lord, did he know their faults and failings and what they would do. <laughs> right. But he yeah. also read their hearts. He knew who they were and could be. Right? Yeah. So, so in a sense, I think, what does the scripture say? To find a friend is a sturdy shelter. He who finds one finds a treasure. Finds one finds a treasure. So if you're blessed with a few of those friends, my goodness gracious, you are my friend. You are blessed beyond most people who struggle to find one. And they struggle to find one because the world is telling us in a thousand different ways that life is transactional. But it's not. Yeah. Life is a gift. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, let's let's move on um, to uh, eros. Eros, which is passion, right? Of, well, really, it is it, it is the passion that leads to um, the union of a man and a woman. It's the opening salvo to a life of marriage that we're going to talk, we could talk about separately later on in, in, the, in the podcast because Christian marriage, Catholic, Catholic sacrament of marriage is beautiful, right? But it is, that, it, 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 it is that deep, passionate attraction that opens the door to the giving of oneself, the decision to give oneself permanently to another in marriage, a man to a woman, a woman to a man. And then because of that passion and attraction, it leads to the giving, the, the unity of those two individuals, even bodily, and therefore to the great mystery and gift of conception too. So Eros is kind of like the doorway into marriage, but Christian marriage is greater than Eros. Make sense? Yes. Yep. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, then the last default is agape. Agape. If I had never heard the word, how would you describe agape? Um, gosh, this is like the the culmination of mm -hmm. of love. Um, you know, as we see in, I'd say, the unconditional uh, love mm -hmm. of the Father and the Son. Right, right. Unchanging, not dependent on circumstance. Right. It's total. It's complete. It's total self-gift and it's the willing of the full good of the other which is what love is right it's an act of the will it's not an emotion alone it has an emotion like in eros but it's more than that right it's a decision it's an act of the will so agape is unconditional love that exists perfectly in god and we through the grace of the holy of the holy spirit all right we are invited to imitate that love as much as we can, despite our faults and failings. Now, you described heaven, but heaven would be entering into that great mystery, unencumbered, totally free, totally pure, totally forgiven, without the baggage of our sins and their aftermath. So that would be like running and never growing tired, flying and always getting closer to the destination that you love. St. Thomas speaks beautifully of heaven as an eternal falling ever more deeply in love with God. Imagine what that's like. <laughs> really, if you think about it. And you're aware in some sense because we don't get obliterated, obviously. We believe in the resurrection of the body, so we are in a glorified body in this existence. I mean, it's, that's what I mean. It's, it's so hard to describe. Uh, there are no words to do it. But agape really describes God's love. And that's how he loves us. Mm -hmm. You know, you know I, I recently gave a talk in Salt Lake City in Utah. And 
I spoke of the three steps of the evolution of the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels. And perhaps it's a great way to summarize this, because remember when the, when the Lord said, you know, the golden rule, love God above all things and love your neighbor as yourself. All right? So he's teaching us how to love each other. The standard is how you would love yourself. Then the second step is in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He, he blows people's minds open and says, the neighbor is not just the person you like, the person who shares your beliefs, but the neighbor could be the outcast, the poor. The Samaritan understood that. Mm-hmm. And then the night before he died, what does Jesus say in the Gospel of St. John? Love one another as I have loved you. Right. So having said that, that's the invitation to agape. That's the invitation to agape. Yeah. And of course we fail because we are not God, but that's, that's the, the goal to which we strive to purify ourselves of our motives, our intentions, to, to purify our will, because everything we do has mixed emotions and also mixed intentions, mixed motivations. I don't ever recall that I could say in full conscience that I did something completely selfless. Because every time I examine my conscience, there's just a bit of Frank sticking out somewhere in there. And I think everyone's in the same boat. But that portion has to keep shrinking. Yes. Yeah. That's discipleship, to learn to let that go. He -hmm. must increase, I must decrease. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So much to dive into. I mean, we could go on for hours and hours on love, Excellency. Right. You know... Yes, we could. And I think we really need, um, again, for the sake of our children and young people, um, is I don't think so much to give them the theory, but to give them the example. There's no greater way to teach a young person what love is than a father and a mother who truly love each other work out their problems with all their humanity, choose to do the good of the other, and are in love with each other both passionately and volitionally in the choices they make. Or to introduce them to the example you said before, in your life, in my life, we have one or two or three, maybe even four, truly good friends, to witness that for young people. So they didn't know it's not just theory, or as, as you know, some will say it's blah, blah, blah. You people who all say blah, 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 blah. Okay, well then this is what we're talking about. It's right here in living color, right in front of you. <laughs> That's, I think, the, the great challenge for us. Yes, yep. Let's, let's continue this on the other side of the break, Excellency. You are listening to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. We're talking about love. We'll be back to talk about marriage on the other side of the break. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203 742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials as well as columbrium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it is an opportunity to build a bridge back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces costs, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option five, or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help make the best decisions for your family. The number again is 203-742-1450, and select option five, or visit 
www.ctcemeteries.org. Welcome back, everybody, to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Okay, Excellency, so we, we started going right into it and, um, mm-hmm. and talking about marriage. And as you mentioned, by the way, we will talk about the single life, which is a vocation, which is an important vocation to talk about um, mm-hmm. but in a future show. Uh, but for now, we're going to talk about the vocation of marriage. Excellency, what, mm-hmm. what is marriage? Well, it, it's like everything else. It's easier to define what it's not, what it is not, than what it is. And the key, I think, to understand the difference between what the secular world believes about marriage and what we as Catholic Christians believe is to contrast the word contract versus covenant. Because a marriage license literally is a contractual agreement, is it not? Right. It has to be witnessed and notarized. And in the law, there are laws that govern, you know, the rights and obligations of spouses one to the other so that they could live harmoniously. The state doesn't require you to love each other. The state doesn't even require that you like each other. <laughs> but the state requires that you get a license and you, and you abide by the contract. All right. Until either party decides, according to the secular world, that the contract's not work, not worth it, and they have an exit strategy called divorce. Mm-hmm. Okay, that can't be farther away from what we're talking about, what marriage is in the Christian world, particularly in the Catholic world. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, from Article One Thousand Six Hundred and One to One Thousand Six Hundred and Sixty Six. There are about 65 paragraphs, about 10 pages worth of reading. I would recommend anyone listening to pull out their copy. If they don't have a copy, buy a copy, okay? Because it's worth having. It's the compendium of Catholic faith. And just reading through it. Because it's fascinating to see such a comprehensive presentation, again, of a mystery. Because we speak of marriage as a covenant, Now, two examples come to mind. In the Old Testament, Yahweh sought to make a covenant with his people. And he made multiple covenants with Noah, with Moses. But in the end, the covenant was the offer of an unbreakable bond an unbreakable unity of love between God and his people. One that the Israelites through the ages sinned against. That's what the prophets were railing against. But God never wavered. And it is that covenant sealed in blood, that covenant that says, you will be my people and I will be your God under every condition and circumstance for the ages unto forever. And that is why the covenant with the Jewish people will be forever valid because God does not go back on his covenant. And in the mystery of his life, he chose the Jewish people as his own, out of which we came when, in our belief, the Messiah came to fulfill the promise of the covenant. And our Jewish brothers and sisters still await the Messiah. But the covenant remains, so it's unbreakable. And then, therefore, in Christian theology, the image of marriage, the the image that informs marriage, is the covenant between Christ and his his bride, the church. His bride, the church. And, again, because we're grafted onto Christ, we're part of his mystical body, but it is that love that Christ has for each of us and for us as a body, his body, of which he is the head, denotes, again, an unbreakable bond so that those who enter into the mystery of marriage are entering into something very similar, but it is between two human beings who have, through the experience of Eros, through the choice all right, of, of living a life of willing the, other, the other's good, to seek agape, ultimately as the bond that binds them together, they become for the world a living example of those two covenants, 
for us to see. And they are meant then to be a partnership, not the way the world understands it. Right? A partnership, hand in hand, heart to heart, hand, right? For all of their earthly life. So we speak of the ends of marriage. It is the good of the spouses and it is for the procreation of children. Now that's another piece of dis dissonance in the world because in the secular world, you can talk about a relationship between uh, a man and a woman, right? But that relationship is not necessarily open to life because again, it flows from a contractual arrangement. So for the world, right? There is certainly a passion there, there's a commitment there, but it's also a negotiated one. But for Christian marriage, it's very different. Because the unity that exists gives life. Now, how is that different from God in his love, pouring his love out into what became the universe? What did he do? He created life. He created us. So those, so those are the two, if you will, defining ends for this covenant relationship. And ultimately, that's the root of why the church teaches that for people of the same gender, the same sex, it is impossible to enter into marriage the way Christians understand marriage. Because even though they may intend the good of one another, they are not open to the procreation of life. There is not a natural openness to that. So therefore, that's why I indicated, you know, the love of friendship, true, the true giving of life in friendship is a love that could very well be lived in a couple of the same sex or gender, right? But for marriage, it's something totally different because yes. there is this other end. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's it's amazing to 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 see you know uh, you God created I mean marriage has been around since the beginning. There's a natural right. There's a natural there's a natural law that governs marriage for anyone, mm -hmm. right? For anyone, and marriage exists in almost every religious tradition with its own nuances, right? So I don't want to paint when I say the secular world. I really am meaning the unaffiliated, the unreligious world. That's the extreme to what yeah. we're talking about as Christians, right? But then there is, and they're valued. It's valued for, for a lot of what we're talking about, for unity and procreation and, and for the, the openness. Love has to be open to life, right? But in the end, our, the sacrament of, of, of marriage, it's the unity of the couples, it's its indissolubility that is meant to be lifetime, and it's openness to life. Those are the, if you will, the, the characteristics of a Christian marriage. So, let me, can I ask you, Excellency? There's, um, I, I think it was a, a month or so ago. Uh, the um, readings in Sunday masses were mm -hmm. um, from a part of the of the New Testament uh, that often, when guys hear it or husbands hear it, they kind of elbow their wives and be like, "See, see." But um, oh, Ephesians five. <laughs> yes. 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 Oh, so you're married. What's your so, reaction to Ephesians <laughs> 5? <laughs> I think, so for the benefit of the listeners, this is where uh, Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says, uh, wives be subject to your husbands um, as to the Lord. And the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think that might bear some um, explanation from you, Excellency, so we can understand yeah. it better. It's not yeah. what it sounds like when you first hear it, right? No, exactly. No, absolutely. I mean, first of all, the fact that St. Paul lived in a time when there was no sense of any equality between men and women is obvious, right? In fact, Christianity, one of the factors that caused Christianity to grow so quickly was that it valued and respected women in a way different from the, the Roman world. And the place of Our Lady is a clear example of that. But having said all that, to understand Ephesians 5, you have to begin by understanding that St. Paul's real reference 
is Christ and the church. Okay, and therefore Christ is the head of the church and the church is his bride. So in many ways, he is, again, exploring this idea of the covenant and applying it to marriage. Now, that gives the connotation that the spouses are not equal, which is not the case. Not at all. Okay. But rather, if you go further into Ephesians, then what does Paul say about husbands? What's the command to husbands, Steve? Yeah. To, what, to... What, what did the Lord command you as a husband <laughs> to do? He wants me to uh, love Rula the same way that Christ laid down his right. life for the church. Right. So that eliminates any understanding that there is an inferior and superior. It's, it is Paul's way to help us to understand that Christ is the head of the church, but he loves the church so much that he raises the church and its dignity to a beauty that in many ways gives it infinite value. Right? We're never equal to Christ. But in marriage between a husband and a wife, there is, there is, an, it, it, there is an equality. Even though there's a distinction between a man and a woman, there is an inherent sacred equality and that quality is rooted in love. So in the end, if a husband thinks, reading Ephesians 5, that he is not subject to his wife, allow me to remind them that when Christ died on the cross, he willingly subjected himself to humanity, of which he offered them eternal life. So women are not the only ones subjecting themselves men are equally obligated to subject themselves because it's the mystery of love. It's the covenant we are talking about. Does that, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. I, you know, I think the way, the way I have started to look at Ephesians 5 is, uh, so Jesus gave his life up for the church. Um, I should be willing to give my life up for my wife the chances are that I'm not actually physically going to have the opportunity to do that. Um, but I can still do that every day in things like uh, doing things around the house without being asked, um, making sure she has time to pray, uh, letting, this is a tough one for me, but letting her have the last word. You know, well, well and, most of the time she may be right, my friend. <laughs> no, not maybe, Excellency. <laughs> and, right? And and also, you know, just simply averting my eyes from things I shouldn't be looking at. Those are little ways that I could give my life for her on a daily basis. And that is subjecting yourself to your wife. It's dying to yourself so that she may have greater life. It, 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 to wives, be subject to your husband. We see it from the modern terminology, from our modern viewpoint of sub subject, being subjective or being subject to is like, um, it's about authority and it's about control and it's about decision-making, which could very well mean that in the secular world, but here it's different. Understand the word subjected to is dying to oneself, okay? So wives need to die to, for their husbands, to die to their husbands. And husbands, if they're imaging, all right, the same love, are going to die for their wives, die to themselves for their wives. It's an equal, it's an equality of self-gift. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Even, I think, Excellency, even if you look at authority, if you said the husband is the head of the wife, he is the authority, even there, I mean, in Mark's gospel, Jesus says, you know, those who... who are supposed to rule over the Gentiles, lord it over them, but not so with you. That's not how your right. authority is. You're supposed to be a right. slave. Right, right. And again, because the words have taken on connotations in the world now that are different. But I would say this. I like to see it from a different perspective. Um, the body has two lungs for a reason. And in a marriage, there are two spouses, a wife and a husband, for a reason. 
And it's not a question of one lung being more important than the other, one breathing more deeply than the other. In a perfectly healthy body, both are healthy, both breathe in unison. And if one, for whatever reason, becomes hindered or disabled, the other breathes more deeply for the lung. That's what we're talking about. Wow. Yeah. That's what we're talking That's what it means to be subject to your spouse. Mm-hmm. So with this, I mean, beautiful teaching that you're giving us, Excellency, it feels like um, it's not... You know, so to become a priest, you have to go, go through years of training and preparation and, mm-hmm. and uh, discernment. F- to, to get married in the church, you just need like a weekend prep yeah, or ter- like terrible, a class. Terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. Well, it's become terrible. It wasn't always terrible. And, and why do I say that? Is because there was a time when Christian marriage was lived more freely and, and more openly and just more visibly. There were many more marriages that had intact fathers and mothers and were not perfect, but, you know, strove to live the unity and openness to life that we're describing. So in a sense, the the church has always presumed you will learn what Christian marriage is from the marriage of your parents. Hopefully, most of the time by good example, sometimes by bad example, but most of the time by good example. Now, that may not always be the case. Steve's point last week about the majority of households now do not have a father and a mother. Yeah. So children growing up in those families who could love them very deeply and try their best to form them, they will not have the role model in their homes. So we need to help them to find that. So that's why marriage prep, we call pre-cana, whatever, is extremely important. And to your point, it's what we have, okay, is a preparation program, not a formational program, right? To be a priest is five years of formation, full-time. For marriage, it could be a weekend, it could be a series of meetings, it could even be a six-month program. But my contention, and I'm very grateful to, to Dr. Donovan here in our diocese, who is working on this, our contention is that we have to create a formational experience for couples who are being prepared to, to marry, for newlywed couples, and couples as they begin to have their children. The church can't abandon them because we need to help form them and meander through the challenges that they will face. So it's terrible when it's just uh, an afternoon or a day and everybody thinks we're done. No, we're not. <laughs> because the vocation of marriage is of equal beauty as the vocation of the priesthood the permanent vocational states of life. Yeah. And we do five years for the one and, and one day for the other. No, 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 no. The time has come, right? Because the larger world may not teach as well, we have to do it. The mother church needs to do it. And thank God work is already underway in our diocese to address that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Yeah. And it, it just, I mean, I know that um, if the rest of the world feels like it is crumbling around you mm-hmm. that having a strong marriage, I mean, you're good. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. And for those of us who are celibate, if we do not have in our lives one or two true friends mm-hmm. to weather those storms, we are in deep trouble. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you a, a, a really quick funny story before we go to yes, the break? Of so um, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but I love the story. So apparently Winston Churchill was one day walking down the street with his wife. Oh my, and she was a saint, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, and as they're walking, she sees uh, a street sweeper and she suddenly stops and... Uh, and she starts talking to him for a while. And Winston Churchill continues to walk down a little bit. And he waits for her. 
And so she talks to the street sweeper for a while. And then when she finished, she comes and she rejoins her husband. And he says, um, what was that about? And she said, oh, he was once madly in love with me. And Churchill kind of smiled at, at his wife and he said, so imagine you could have been married to a sweet street sweeper. And she said, oh, no, my love. If he married me today, he'd be prime minister. <laughs> See what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's, yeah. Uh, friendship, marriage, celibacy is meant to bring out the best of us. Yes. That's what love does. Yeah. And done the right way, the way you described love in the first segment, that, that's what, exactly what it does, right, Excellency? Right, right. Okay, so you are listening to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. We're going to take a break and come back with a listener question. Want to make a difference at work? Veritas Catholic Network is looking to hire a full-time development director. If you're organized and you have sales or fundraising experience, if you love the faith and feel called to evangelization, if you're looking for something more meaningful, email info at veritascatholic.com. We're hiring, and you can help take Veritas to the next level as we grow and continue to reach more and more souls with the incredible saving words of Jesus Christ. Email us about the development director position. It's info at veritascatholic.com. That is info at veritascatholic.com if you're interested in joining the Veritas team. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, here is this week's question. Mm-hmm. Bishop Frank, what is our Christian duty to those in need in Haiti, Afghanistan, New Orleans, and so many other places where people are in need? Also, is CRS doing anything to help Christians in these areas? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, CRS is certainly on the ground in all of those areas. Um, we, we need to remember that there are 6,600 employees of CRS in 115 countries serving 140 million people each year. And there, was, there were CRS um, affiliates uh, and colleagues in Haiti, Afghanistan. Some stayed behind in Afghanistan to attend to the people's needs. So in all those areas, CRS is already involved, and they have had long relationships with local individuals who can really help to make the societal change we need in these places. But to answer the first part of the question, what's the obligation? Well, the obligation is to do whatever we can possibly can to alleviate the suffering. Remember, we are a mystical body. And then there's a fundamental unity of all humanity. We're all made in the same image and likeness of the same God. So we had a taste of it with uh, Hurricane Ida when she came through. In, in our region, in New York, in Connecticut, we saw people drown in their basements in New York. Yeah. Right? But imagine the, the, the destruction um, in Louisiana and Mississippi, which is not the first time that has happened. So our obligation is to do what? Is to pray for the individuals to give material assistance so that their immediate human needs can be met. And then we need to look at the long-term needs of reconstruction for these people. Because while they're safe in tents or uh, evacuation centers, they need to have their homes restored and their lives, semblance of their lives restored. So I think there's a grave responsibility. Yeah, all right. And so if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in to us on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, so is Veritas Catholic Network. And as always, thank you to Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Excellency, would you please give us your blessing? Let us pray. Lord our God, you are the God of love. 
who invite us into the mystery of your life. Help us to love without reserve or limit, generously, our neighbors, our spouses, our friends, even those who harm us. For each time we dare to love, we grow in our humanity, come closer to sharing your life, and take one step closer to heaven. Bless us this day, bless all who are listening to us, and bless all your people. For we ask this in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, my Amen. friend, I'll see you next week, Steve. Thanks, Excellency. Okay, all the best.